Deer found her. As you know, there's no blueprint for entrepreneurship. You wear so many hats, you burn the midnight oil, you pour your heart and soul into everything that you do. But without a doubt, the journey is worth every single second that you put into it. I'm Lindsay Pinchuk, host of the Dear Founder podcast. I say this because I've lived it for over a decade. I started my first company with $500 in my pocket and a baby in my belly. I grew it and I sold it all. This podcast is my weekly letter to you. We'll talk all things starting, growing, nurturing, and in some cases, even selling a business. Together with some of my closest contacts, I'm here to help you find your own success, whatever that means to you. The ride as a founder is the ride of your life. So come on in and join me for another episode that will get you one step closer to reaching your own founder goals. Hi, everyone. It's me, Lindsay Pinchuk, host of the Dear Founder podcast. I want to ask you a huge favor before we get into today's episode. If you like what you're hearing on the show each and every week, I would so appreciate it if you could take out your phone, scroll all the way down, and click that five-star rating or leave a review telling everyone what it is that you love to hear here each and every week. You see, when you do that, it not only helps others to find the podcast, but it also helps to spread the amazing stories that we share here each and every week. I know I am so appreciative for you being here, for you listening, and for you giving your feedback and your ratings and reviews, and I know that all of my guests appreciate it as well, so thank you. Now, today's episode is a fun one because it's about a topic that so many of us love, and that is chocolate, but it's not any ordinary chocolate. It is the most beautiful, tasty, delicious chocolate that you could ever imagine, and I say that from experience. Katrina Markoff is a visionary. She's a storyteller. And I'm so excited for you to hear what she has to say and how and how she started her company two decades ago before social media even existed, really and truly by sharing her story. Katrina Markoff is the CEO and founder of Vosges, and she began her chocolatier apprenticeship in Spain under the direction of Ferran and Albert Adria of the famed El Bulli. It was there that she began to understand that food was a medium for transformative visceral experiences, and at their encouragement, she set out on a quest directed by the signs to identify her path and reason for being in the world of good, meaningful food. She embarked on a trip around the world, and it was during her travels that she began to see her destiny as an alchemist, sharing in the long tradition of those who believe that creation is the great work and when ingredients are combined in just the right way, they become greater than the sum of their parts. When Katrina returned to the United States, she knew that the restaurant kitchen wasn't the right place for her. And in the last 20 years, she's used vibrant cacao as the medium for her chocolate collections. By combining it with indigenous energetic plants, she's able to communicate a sense of place. Katrina has made it part of her mission to use only superior sourced ingredients for all of Vosges products as an acknowledgement of nature's secret and potent bounty that she has the honor and responsibility to reveal through her product. Please come on in and meet Katrina Markoff. Okay, today on Dear Founder, we have a special guest as always. Um, before I introduce her, it's funny because I met her company back in my bum club days and I, when I was doing the schlepping for Bump Club, I was schlepping to her factory to pick up her product samples to put in our gift bags, but yet we never met. And I will say that Vosges chocolate is a work of art. And that's really how I was introduced to Vosges was seeing them in one of our malls 
and seeing their chocolates and being like, what is this? This is so different. This is so interesting. It's so unique. And that is kind of how I came to know Vosges back in the day, like 10, 15 years ago. But Katrina Markoff is their founder and CEO, and we have never met until today, which is crazy because we basically live down the street from each other in Chicago. And I'm so excited to have her here to share this amazing story. So Katrina, welcome to Dear Founder. Thank you. It's going to be fun. I can't wait. I'm so excited to hear the story from your perspective. I know what I've read. I know what I know. But I want you to tell me and our listeners really how you started Vosges and also what Vosges is. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I grew up in the Midwest in Indiana, Fort Wayne, Macedonian household, very, um, ethnic, you know, upbringing, if you will, a lot of pride for ethnicity and, and ultimately then that means pride for the food. So at a young age, I saw food as like little treasures, like representation of our culture. Not many people knew Macedonian, you know, um, but to me, it was like, really special. And so I think I got a little spark of that at a young age. I had a cake business in high school, went to Vanderbilt, studied chemistry and psychology, but I really was still drawn to the connectivity of food because I would have dinner parties and that would be my way of breaking the ice with people and like connecting because I was more of a, of a, an introvert. And, um, So when I got to my senior year of school, I was trying to figure out what in the world was I going to do with my life. And I showed up to the career fair to, you know, explore job opportunities. And I was like, oh, this is so awkward. And I grew up in a very entrepreneurial, figure it out, you know, ethnic kind of um, home. So I just figured, okay, I don't fit into all this, but my heart keeps telling me like, I got to do something with food. I just love food. I love the expression of it. I love the energy of it. It's like chemistry really in the sense that it's, you know, you're changing states of matter and ingredients into something more energetic. And that shows up later in my life too. So it's funny how these seeds are planted, but then I decided I was going to go to culinary school. So I moved to Paris and my mom agreed for me to do that. Um, And I went to the Cordon Bleu and I was there for about a year and a half studying both the sweet and the savory side of, of culinary arts. And then I got to meet a chef who was in Paris, who was actually Indian. And he did a demonstration of like Royal Indian food from India. And he used in the dessert, all this silver leaf and the whole dessert was covered in pure silver. And I was like, what is that? And, and he said, Oh, um, metals, pure silver is an aid in digestion. And whenever you eat your last course or your last bite in an Indian restaurant, they do a lot with seeds at the end of the meal. If you've ever tried that, um, it's really about your digestion. And that was like this huge, you know, moment of like, I never thought of food more than taste really. And so it became like, okay, now what's next. And so then I ended up, um, working at El Bulli in Spain, which is the kind of beginning of like molecular gastronomy and experiential food in, a, in sort of science and art. And then I traveled around the world studying food for nine months, mostly in Southeast Asia and Australia and a little bit in um, Korea and China, and then got back to the States and realized that there wasn't a lot of innovation in pastry and in particular in dessert. And so I 
had this um, kind of unfortunate circumstance where I was going to do a cookbook with a friend because I realized I didn't want to be a chef, but she didn't like my cookbook ideas. And um, her dad was a big cookbook publisher. So she went on and did the book, but it was actually such a gift that she gave me that gift of rejection. (laughs) Um, Because then I was like, I know what we need is like a really innovative, soulful storytelling, experiential chocolate brand. Cause there was really nothing in the U S or really anywhere. Um, and I had this moment where I had a necklace on from the Nagaland tribes in India that I was gifted by my friend who didn't want to do the book with me. Again, funny how things are gifts when you don't <laughs> see them as that in the beginning. Um, and, and I, wanted to pay homage to the Nagaland where the necklace was from. Cause I had such a connection to this, this necklace. And I went in my kitchen and I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to make a curry coconut truffle and name it after the Nagaland. And then I was like, that's it. I'm going to use my travel experiences and the love that I felt for all these cultures and, you know, experiences and people and religion and all the things I learned about architecture um, through this medium of chocolate. So chocolate became a medium for storytelling for me. And it became something other than chocolate in that moment came um, experiential and like purpose-driven. Cause I was like, if you put something as unusual as curry or olive oil and chocolate, you're naturally going to get someone to open their mind up. It's like opening up your new neural pathways. Cause it doesn't seem right. And then when they taste it and it's good, it's like, oh, it's amazing. And they're open. They're open from the experience. So it became a soulful, you know, haute cuisine, culinary, chefy chocolate brand that was highly sensorial. Cause I was like, people need to breathe before they taste and close their eyes and they need to feel what they taste before they put it in their mouth and they need to smell it. And then, you know, so the experience was sort of born in that way. And um, I started out of my apartment in Chicago in Logan Square and just, you know, had a real figure it out kind of attitude, not, not really a business person or, or, or labeled really anything other than a person who had a desire and took action to get something done. And I believed because the desire was so strong. I believed in my perspective and what I was doing and the impact it would make, you know, emotionally with people, spiritually. I believe that so deeply it became truth. And, um, and that's really how the brand was born. And, um, you know, you don't know what you don't know, but when you have the desire and you keep trying to figure it out, you don't just stop. I guess you just keep, keep moving, you know, keep it going. And I, I just always approached everything like I'll figure it out. And so the, you know, the business grew outside of my apartment, obviously. And, and um, opened, you know, we opened up a bunch of stores. We had nine stores at the time um, that we were at the height of retail. And um, we've downsized our stores and only have three now and really focused on direct to consumer and um, these sort of chocolate as gifting experiences. Um, and yes, there's personal consumption too, but um, our box of chocolate is definitely not like a typical box of chocolate. Explain that to the people who don't know what Vosges is. Yeah. So, um, so a lot of the chocolates, um, have 
interesting ingredients, but everything from bacon to olive oil to paprika, but we source not just interesting ingredients, but like energetically best in class, highest quality, highest grading ingredients. And that um, is something that chefs do. You know, it's, it's, it's a very, it's what's different about what we do is that we source things that are the way a chef would source. And that's not what manufacturing typically does. You know, there's, you know, uh, different um, different ways of, of of doing it at most more cost effective ways, but I you know choose to really select the best in class ingredients because they also carry the best energy. Because people that cultivate these ingredients that are so special, they put their hands into it and their hearts, and they know they're going to get the money, the reward of it. So they care for it kind of even you know more, and. Um, and in every box of Vosges, there's an experience of how to taste the chocolate from the senses perspective. So, you know, um, closing your eyes and getting into your breath, getting into awareness and then, um, and then curiosity and then, you know, the smell, the touch, the sound the chocolate makes as it breaks in your mouth, of course, the taste, the finish, the lingering, and then, you know, the pleasure of it, um, or, or the experience of it. Sometimes you're just fascinated by it, but not necessarily, um, it's not always pleasure. Sometimes it's just like um, some kind of journey with it because there's a story with every chocolate too. Usually the story is about the land from which it comes, how it's crafted, um, the historical uh, reference or uses of the, of the food or the ingredient. Um, and now I'm, I'm working a lot more on chocolate for transformation with alchemy. How can chocolate be a vehicle for transformation, um, activation? And because cacao originally was sacred plant medicine, sort of carries that vibration of like getting you into your heart space, getting you out of fear, getting you into more joy. And when you're in those places, you're more likely to be able to take a risk to connect with someone, to connect with yourself, to hear your inner voice. Um, and that's, that's really where creativity lives and creation lives. And we're always creating, whether we acknowledge it or not, we are creating our lives. And so, you know, I use chocolate in a way, um, for that. Guess what? I have two spots open on my coaching calendar starting October 1st. Many of you have asked me how you can work with me one-on-one to build your community through sustainable social media practices, partnerships and collaborations, email marketing, publicity, and more. Earlier this summer when I announced I was taking clients, the spots filled up in less than a week. But good news, my calendar is opening up and I'll be taking on two new clients later this fall. If you're interested, simply grab 30 minutes from me through the link in the show notes and let's talk about how we can work together to build your community for bottom line growth. I can't wait to meet you. I love how you describe your story and how you share your story and also just how aware of your story you are. I mean, it's like beautiful how you started this company and your why. Now, I would love for you to share how you took this company from your apartment to what it is. Like, what did you do? Like, what was the moment that you were like, oh, God, I cannot be (laughs) like doing this out of my Logan Square apartment anymore because that's yeah. a big step. You know, there are a lot of entrepreneurs who 
start in their kitchen or start out of their apartment, um, whether it's a retailer or a product or whatever it might be. But yes. how did you know like what to do? Well, you know, I in the beginning I was you know such a little perfectionist artist, like I need to make and touch every chocolate, right? And like my brother came over and he's like, you know, you're only gonna be able to make like a hundred chocolates a week or something like that, you know, like hundred boxes. You gotta figure out how you're and he was right. Like, I'm like, okay, how do you put the energy in it without having to touch every single one? And there was demand was building. So then um someone where were your customers coming from? Sorry, like you said demand yeah. was building. Like where, like who how are you? This was before social it's, media. So like who knew about Vosh? I think what happened was um the the press really at that time, magazine press was really how you got noticed. Mm -hmm. and, and I your was products beautiful. And the product's beautiful, but like what we were doing was radical because there were no weird in, you know, unusual ingredients in food at the time. There wasn't in potato chips. It wasn't in coffee. It wasn't in chocolate. Certainly it just wasn't there. So when the press started hearing that I, you know, was doing wasabi and chocolate and curry and chocolate, it sounded maybe disgusting, but the fact that I had, you know, gone to culinary school in France and worked at one of the most famous restaurants in the world, El Bulli, and traveled all over the world studying food. Like they, there was some like curiosity of what, what is this it's kind of a credible background? Like I got to try this. And they tried it and it was so, it, you know, it was so well balanced. It was so, you know, high, high quality and in luxury positioning. Um, people started to talk about it and really it became the press that what is what built the brand. And then, and I originally was like, we're going to be multi-channel from the get-go. So had a very early website sold get corp basically corporate gifts. So like my friends that had jobs at companies would buy them for their clients. Um, that's kind of what really started the business is the gifting business. And then I did the chocolate bars and that's when, you know, the Dean and DeLuca's and the whole foods of the world got involved because there was no high end chocolate bar at the time. You just so, couldn't. So when did you leave your apartment? Like what would like, probably what it took it? about, um, uh, I want to say probably after a year and a half, I found the co-packer in the suburbs of Chicago who was willing to let me come in and actually make my product there, but then deposit it on his lines and enrobe it. And I was blessed for that because that's not typical. And then I worked with the co-packer for four years. And after the fourth year, the business had enough scale that I could actually start to manufacture myself. So I bought my first depositor, first enrober and cooling tunnel. And I went over here into I guess it's kind of like Bucktown Lincoln Park and got a space about 7,000 square feet on the second floor of a, like an old manufacturing building, which is not ideal for management. You don't really want to, you really want to be on the ground floor <laughs> for deliveries, you know, in yeah. and out of, you know, um, but we made it work and, and then started with those three pieces of equipment. And then just, I didn't know anything about buying equipment. So I thought, well, if I'm going to buy equipment, I'm just going to buy the best of the best. This, we're going to make the best product. And so I bought new and, um, and, and then that's kind of just, 
that was the beginning. And then you learn how the equipment works from the technicians who you buy the new equipment from, which is one of the advantages of buying new is that you get the resource, the technical resource. So they'll come out and help you. They'll talk to you over the phone and troubleshoot. And so we learned about manufacturing. Never, you know, in the beginning, never had a quality tech or anything. And I want to say like, Katrina taught herself how to do this. I mean, this was like, not like, right. I mean, this was like, you figured it out. Like you said, like you didn't just like, you asked people and you figured it out. You didn't know how to do this. Yeah. And I, and I didn't even really know how to make chocolate. I had a day's worth of making chocolate in culinary school, but I didn't know. And sometimes when you don't fully know, you can be more innovative, you can be more creative. And, you know, there's pros and cons to both, um, to both ways. And I think you kind of need to know the rules to be able to break them. Um, but I just, just was so, I could just like see and feel and taste the future of where this was going. I could see like where the market was. I saw where the gaps were. So it brought a ton of confidence to me that I just knew this was going to be a, a significant brand. And I also didn't really like do it for the money. I did it to like increase people's experiential sensorial connection to themselves. And from that, like, I just figured the money would come. So you said, you said you were at the co-packer in the suburbs and you finally had enough scale that you were able to buy your own products or your own equipment to manufacture on your own. You say you had enough scale. Was is that were people coming to you? Like were like the Whole Foods and the Dean and DeLuca's coming to you? Yes. Or were you going to like seeking them out? Because you know a lot of brands start with a product and they are trying desperately to get into the Whole Foods and the Dean Dean and DeLucas of the world. So how did that work for you? Um actually everyone called us because we got the press. And it's sort of like what we were talking about earlier. The more you focus on your craft, on your community, on your um, purpose for being, it's funny. People just want to tell that story. People love to talk about transparent, authentic, passionate, unique brands. And it's sort of like, it just fit really well. And how long did it take before one of those big retailers called you? That first article in Food and Wine, um, which was November 1998. Um, It was only like six months into the business, this article came out. Still making it by hand. And it was like, well, we started getting a lot of orders. And so that helped us kind of get to the point where it was, we were about to explode. We were cramped. I always say never move into a bigger space or a new thing until you're really bursting at the seams because things happen. You Things happen. So like that for, I'm speaking from a person who didn't take investment dollars to start the company. It was very scrappy. I didn't do my you know, series one, two, three rounds, you know, I, so it was very much just like, well, and also I think founding a business as a female founder was very different at that yeah, time than I, it is now. And you, and if you were to start it now, that might be different, but like your right. resources were different. There was no social media. You were reliant on traditional press. Yeah. You know, yeah, so, absolutely. so when was that first big order? So, I mean, 
you know, it became multi, you know, I said it was multi-channel. So like there were lots of orders that were coming in from individuals. And then Neiman Marcus um, called and said, okay, we're going to, we want to start selling it in Chicago. And so that probably happened in, um, you know, right before Valentine's day in 1999. And then, you know, our revenue, I think the first in 98, when we did 150,000, then we did, you know, 400,000, then we did 800,000, then we did 1.6 million. It's so easy to double when you're little, you know, and then 1.6 million to 2.2 and then 2.2 to 3.5 and then 3.5 to seven and then seven to eight and then eight to nine and a half and then 10 and then 10 is a whole different type of problem. And, you know, 10 to 12 and you linger around there for a little bit and then start to bump again. Um, Cause you have to, at least in my experience, you kind of have to reset where you are in your infrastructure with people because it becomes, um, you know, where you don't just do it all yourself. Right? Where are you from a revenue standpoint today? So we'll do probably somewhere around 30 million this year. So, so I want to point out though, this is something very important that I want to point out to people listening. Katrina started this company in 1997, 1998. 98, yeah. Okay, so 1998. Think about how long ago that was. This didn't happen overnight. And what Katrina explained just now is exactly what I share all the time, which is you have to tell your story. And when you tell your story, people come to you. And that is what happened with Vosh. They, You did an amazing job telling your story and not just through the press, but through your retail experiences, which were beautiful. And like, they, like, it's hard for me to like put into words over a podcast what the Vosh spaces looked like, but they were like what they do look like. But I'm thinking of like your Armitage store and your 900 store, um, like what they looked like at the time. But like, people wanted to go in because they were just so inviting and so different. And so when you start telling your story and sharing your story and putting it out there, the business comes, but it just might take some time. And I, and it's like, I love your story because you didn't get investors. You were scrappy. You figured it out and you did exactly what every founder should do, which is talk about their brand, talk about their story, and then and pique people's interest, which is really what happened and what put you on the map. Yeah. 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 And I think, I mean, I think, yes. And then along the way, you know, you make mistakes. And And I was just going to actually ask you that, like what, what kind of big pivotal mistakes have you made that have shifted some of the ways that you've done business? You know, I think as the business got to be a, you know, a certain scale, you know, in the $20 million range, I, cause it happened relatively quickly to that scale. And I, I, I started to think, Oh my God, what do I know about running a company, you know, like that big or, and so I started to hire a lot of people that were very expensive to run different areas, but I, I didn't see a ton of execution from those people. And I, I, you know, you make bad hires, it happens and you rely on them and they have a lot of confidence too in what they're doing. So they, you know, show you on paper how it's going to happen. And then it, you know, it doesn't happen. And, 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 you know, I, I lost some confidence in my ability to hire 
and to like execute at that level. So I, I floundered a little bit in that, in that period of time, probably for at least seven years thinking I'll just hire the next one or the next one until I got, had a big bump in the road. It was only then that I like really reactivated in the business and I got connected to what my sort of essence was that started the business, which was, you know, very much, you know, an, an intuitive, um, you know, more um, soulful, I guess, approach to what the chocolate really was meant to do. And, and then kind of corrected the channel. We started doing a lot of wholesale business and it really, it's hard to put a brand into another retailer because they're never going to tell your story the same way. It becomes more like transactional price points important. Our stuff is more expensive. So the wholesale strategy is what everybody came into the organization to help wanted to do. And I was like, okay, let's try it. But it never worked. It, it was, it's okay. We have some wholesale business, but the real driver and the real strength is the D to C gifting experience. And that's, you know, now like, you know, we're really and reset. So how are you though? Like, you, like, cause you talked in the beginning of our conversation about, you know, connecting with people over food. So like, and you don't have as many, I want to point out, you do not have as many retail experiences anymore, which could be seen as a vehicle for getting people in to try it. And then of course, buying D2C online, but you don't have as many retail experiences as you did, as you once did. But how do you build that connection and tell that story now to get people to order direct to consumer online? Um, that's where, you know, I think the social media comes in play, the video comes in play, which, you know, is an opportunity for, you know, deeper and more sensorial experience. We're working on that. I think that's something that is an opportunity for us. We do have two stores in O'Hare. And so the millions of people that go through there are very helpful. Now COVID was, was challenging. Um, people weren't traveling and we couldn't sample. So that was a different thing, but um, the the airport locations are really fantastic because it is a gifting customer typically that was going through there, corporate travel. And we have the ability to sample individually wrapped pieces. And when you try those, you usually don't go back to other chocolate because it's just really delicious. I mean, it's really, really good. It's best in class, you know, ingredients. It's fresh. That's the other thing is like our product is fresh. So the truffles, they only last a couple of weeks and I'll never add anything to make them last longer because they're, that's really the best tasting version of them. So we, we do that. So it, um, I think, you know, those stores are important as long as there's foot traffic. We made a lot of decisions on real estate that weren't the best foot traffic spots. And then you pay big rents, but you don't have the foot traffic and chocolate is very much you know, an impulse buy. So you need people walking by and, and um, which is why that model at the airport is so great at O'Hare. So do you think you'd go into other airports? Is that something that you've ever explored? I'd like for to. Yes. Right before COVID, we were going to do a lot of that. And <laughs> um, now we're revisiting it again. So now hopefully we're going to start down that path. But yeah. What else is on the horizon for Vosh? Um, so we're doing a really beautiful enhanced experience with wine and chocolate. 
um, that we're launching in September and a new um, experiential box, how to taste the two together. Um, we're doing a lot with cacao wellness. So I spoke a bit about that before. It's just like, how do you use chocolate rituals to create, you know, emotional um, clearing? You know, we tend to get you know, it can be overwhelmed. And usually these things are all based in fear. And so chocolate has this power to really get you into love. And when you're in love space, you don't have the fear. So, you know, really focusing on those rituals um, uh, for prosperity, for self-love, for new beginnings, it's kind of a big part of our brand. And then um, I would say like the new collections that are coming out, I have a little, it's like a snapshot. We're doing a lot of um, so cool. Ultima materia um, with sustainability. So this is our box is going to be all um, pressed paper pulp, highly embossed. Um, it's going to be opening up like a book and, you know, that will be um, a new experience for, for the seasonal, you know, holiday time. And, and always doing in and outs are really important for our brand. So collections come and they go and they're very limited edition. So it keeps our, our core customers really interested because they just like, what's the next experience yeah. I can have. And that's fun. Today's episode is brought to you by Hivecast, an amazing agency providing high quality podcast production made simple and affordable. I hit the jackpot when I came across Hivecast as I pieced together services from contractors all over the web initially to help me with my podcast. Hivecast was everything that I needed all in one place. For just $500 per month, they not only produce and edit four episodes, but they also create the marketing assets. Emma, my account manager, is amazing, making sure that I'm on task and that we can schedule episodes regularly and by my deadlines. Honestly, the time saved working with Hivecast is worth at least triple what I'm paying. Their sister company, Fireside, offers other marketing services for small businesses, including social media management, Facebook and Instagram ads, search engine marketing, and so much more. Again, all at a rate palatable by a small business owner. The best part, there's no contract. You can purchase their services as needed on a monthly basis. Use the code FOUNDHER and save 50% off your first month of services. Give them a try. The decision to outsource this part of my business has surely saved me a ton in the long run, and it was the best decision I've made for my business. That is how you keep your customers. You know, you have to keep providing them with new experiences, especially in your world. And, and that translates to other businesses greatly. And yes. so you always have to be thinking about what it is your community wants and what can you give them to keep them coming back. Um, you don't want to be a one-off. And you're a pro with this like perspective. It's like, you know, how, like, I, I, I can't wait to hear your opinion. Like, what should we be doing more? What is your opinion about like, what do people want to see? And you, you kind of said more behind the scenes. And I think you're right. We don't do that much of it, but I could walk you around. I mean, the most beautiful innovation lab. Well, and also though, like, I mean, people, you have a really cool, unique product. And because you don't have the retail space that you used to, I mean, that's how I knew you. That's how I found you. You know, you, it's like now though, we have to use the tools that we have at our fingertips, which most of those are social platforms to share those experiences and those behind the scenes, because, you know, that's what makes you different is, is your ingredients and your process and 
your packaging and, and keeping people really engaged. And you guys do that so well. I mean, your customers are your customers. Yes. Yes. You know? Yeah. So I'd love for to wrap up on the same question I ask everyone at the end. And really that is, what would you tell someone who's just getting started with a business, three actionable things that they should be doing as they're getting started? Um, I would say when you hit a bump that feel that you hit really hard, that you're like, oh, it's a huge setback. Just take a minute, breathe, and think about it from sort of like, a how do I turn this into a 180 opportunity? What do I need to do to sort of neutralize this and get things going again? And don't be stunned by stuff too long. It happens all the time in the beginning, in the middle, in the end. So you just have to develop that muscle of when stuff hits you, like you lost the account, the investor didn't come through. I got a bad review. Okay. Learn from it and like move on, go to the customer. What else can we do? Find another one, connect with people. I find, you know, the, the quicker I can find another person to give a little love to, to help. I usually then have a clear head and, and, and can figure out what I need to do next for my own path. So I always think when I say like, if you have a bad day, go help somebody else and your day's going to shift. You'll just see, it's just create a win-win somehow. And you'll, it just kind of happens. And then, you know, keep moving is a big thing. Like keep moving. And, um, uh, when you hear those, any sort of self-critical thoughts, like you're not good enough, imposter syndrome, just like, I kind of talk to that voice and I'm like, okay, I'm done with you. Goodbye. I, I pretend I burn it up and then it goes away. And I'm like, okay, let me get busy. What am I doing? What am I, I start writing my goals. What do I need to do right now? I get into action. I try to stay out of the stun, like stop, like, oh, what was me? Like, I, I, I don't have time for that. No one has time for that. Nobody. Katrina Markoff, founder and CEO of Vosges. Thank you so much for being here. This was so insightful and I love hearing your story from your mouth and I hope to be hearing more of it on your social media <laughs> soon. <laughs> I'm going to do it. I got my marching orders. All right. Thank you so much, Lindsay. I told you that this episode was amazing. Katrina is such a wonderful storyteller and I am honored to have had her here today to share her journey with all of you. As always, I'll be sending her key takeaways to my entire email list, so you're going to want to make sure that you subscribe to the link in the show notes. When you do, you'll also get a lesson each and every week to help grow your own business. And as of lately, we've started to share exclusive content sent right to your inbox as well. But for now, here are the top five takeaways from today's episode. Number one, in the beginning, you want to make sure that you, in the beginning, you want to make and touch everything but you have to figure out how to scale the business without your involvement in every turn. Number two, you have to tell your story. Vosges told their story through their retail experience, the press, and eventually through digital channels. And because of that, they were able to put their company on the map and the customers came. Number three, create limited editions and unique experiences to keep people, to keep people coming back and to keep them engaged. You want your core customers to keep patronizing your business, so you have to think about what they want and what you can give them to keep them returning. You do not want to be a one-off, and this will help prevent you from doing so. Number four, when you hit a bump, take a minute, breathe, and think about how you can neutralize and get it back on track. 
What can you do to make a 180 and get it going again? Number five, success doesn't happen overnight. Katrina's story takes place over nearly two decades, and she continues to grow, pivot, and create in order to keep her business thriving and her customers returning. Thank you again for joining us on today's episode of Dear Founder. And once again, if you like what you're hearing, please make sure to leave a five-star rating or review so that others can find us and hear these amazing stories like Katrina's. If you know someone who wants to start their own business or who has an idea, text them this episode or put it on Instagram and tag me. I'll be sure to share some of those to say thank you. Stay tuned for another episode of Dear Founder coming your way every Tuesday and Thursday.